Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, A Mission for Ministry, with a message titled, A God Orientation and the Bible. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 55, verses 8 to 9, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Over the past two weeks, I've been discussing our vision at Back to the Bible Canada. You know, we believe the Bible and we teach the Bible. We do it consistently with the Bible's intended meaning. It's what we do and it's what we've always done. But today I want to address the so what question. I mean, why should I care? I mean, earlier on this series, I gave an example of a gal who went to a church where in at least in her estimation of what was going on, it was each Sunday was dedicated to getting little sticky notes of encouragement from God. Things like, you can make it and you can fulfill all your dreams. And if, you know, if life hands you lemons, you can make lemonade and sell it for a profit. You can be the best you that you can be and that kind of stuff. Positive thoughts to help you as you forge ahead with your life goals and your visions of what you'd like to achieve. I had said then that the Bible gets used as a tool for encouraging us in our goals. And God also becomes a tool to help us achieve what we want out of our lives. And of course, this vision of religion, this is only good if it helps me achieve what I want. And that's the vision that's popular today. Whether it's talk show hosts or slick and polished religious charlatans, you can get everything you want from God, from a good health to lots of money to be an influencer in the culture, and to be one who's admired and sought after. And that's what's being said. And so what's wrong with that? Well, on a practical level, life's not like that, and God's not like that. If you haven't gotten the memo yet, it's time you pay attention, listen up. Life is filled with suffering, reversals of fortune, unexpected diseases, tragedies in our families, and sometimes it's not even so dramatic. It's just the tedium that takes root in our lives when we seem to be stuck in our position in life or in our job or in a routine that we can't seem to get out of, and we're left wondering about meaning and purpose. In all of that, we can say, is that really what there is to life? It's just one long struggle and then I die? Now, to those who have a sticky note of encouragement religion, when life really eventually catches up to them, for many, there's an eventual disillusionment and even anger. God, you said... You'd help me fulfill all my dreams, but my dreams aren't being fulfilled. God, you promised, and then it seems the promise isn't fulfilled. Those sticky notes are looking all the world for what they were from the beginning. They're just meaningless bits of paper. Well, okay, I've made the point that this view of the Bible simply is untrue, but even so, I have not yet made the case that a careful approach to Bible study and teaching and to applying the Bible's truth to our lives is something that everyone should care about. And so today, I want to make the case about why we or anyone should care about the Bible. So where do we start? John Piper once used an analogy that I think works here. Almost no one when visiting the Grand Canyon, he said, and staring over its vastness and grandeur has as the first of their thoughts, wow, I'm overwhelmed at how great I am. But for that matter, they also don't think, wow, I'm overwhelmed at how second class I am. Rather, the first thought is not to think about ourselves at all. For that moment, we lose ourselves and are swept away in something greater than a constant fascination with self. I know I had that experience when I was at the Mauna Loa Observatory on the big island of Hawaii. No, we were not permitted to view the planets from the actual telescope itself, but we did have a very good telescope for us 
that had a unique vantage point, and I remember observing the, the rings of Saturn, and I found myself filled with joy by what I saw. It wasn't a joy that was focused on me, but a joy of seeing something so much greater than me. Think of what Solomon saw. Ecclesiastes, he begins with the words, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Indeed, Solomon observes that one generation comes and then it goes, and soon all that was accomplished is forgotten, so that what was done is meaningless in the wider scheme of things. Some things seem wise in one generation and then are regarded as foolish in the next. If you're looking for sticky notes of encouragement, Solomon takes a blowtorch to them and he burns them right in front of you and hands you back the ashes and shows you what life is all about. If all you're looking for is to build your own life of meaning and purpose, let me commend to you a good and careful read of those short 12 chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes. It might shock you. So why should you read the Bible the way it's written? Well, for one, the Bible begins with the words, in the beginning, God. Not in the beginning man or human beings. The Bible begins with a statement that the most important of all things, indeed the one thing that is eternal, is God. Yeah, of course, the Bible has a great deal of things to say about us. But when it speaks about us, it always does so in relation to God. So let's start out where the Bible does, with the being of God. The very first thing we learn about God is that he is the creator. Of course, we learn that from Genesis 1 and 2, but we also learn that from other places. Listen to the words of Psalm 8, 3, and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Notice again those very first words. When I look not at the heavens, but when I look at your heavens. They're God's heavens. He's the legal owner of them. The heavens are the work of his hands. He made them, he owns them. At the outset, that changes our perspective when we look at them. When we study the heavens and the mysteries of what is there, we're studying how the creator designed them. We're overwhelmed at his work. But more than that, David, the author of this psalm, says he's also struck with another thought. What is man that you're mindful of him? That is to say, David is quite aware of God's dealings with man. We're created in God's image. God's concern for righteousness and right conduct is felt among human beings. Human beings' lostness in sin and need for redemption is stressed. The Bible is God's story of the great creator who's also the great redeemer of a lost and ruined humanity. So David's asking a question, why is it that a God who is grand enough to design the massive expanse of the cosmos, what is it? that he has designed in man, that he should take even the slightest modicum of interest in us. And I say this because so many of us think we're the center of the universe. So God needs to pay attention to us and to care for our needs and to make sure we're getting what we need for ourselves. But David thinks differently, and indeed the entire Bible thinks differently. Why should the great creator have even the slightest interest in us? And yet he does. I mean, this kind of thinking allows us to think of the infinite greatness of God, who's also interested in the salvation of finite, created, fallible human beings. And so everything in our Bible starts with the being of God. Ah, but that's also where our greatest problems lie. 
After all, who is God? And here the drama of the Bible so quickly goes to the question as to which is the true God, or are there multiple gods, or is it up to us to conceive of God as we see fit? The nations around Israel are all nations that had unique local tribal deities. You can't read the Bible very long before you're introduced to Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Canaanites. She's connected with fertility. Then there's Baal, sometimes called Bel. He seems to have been, at least for a long period of time, the supreme god among the Canaanites and is often seen as the sun god and the storm god. Then there's Dagon, the god of the Philistines, and Marduk, the god of the Babylonians. Milcom is the god of the Ammonites, and Moloch is the god of the Moabites. On and on go the list of gods and goddesses. And what are we to make of all those deities? Are they real or are they demonic? How do you know if, among all the gods and goddesses, that you are worshiping the right one? See, on the one hand, the Bible tends to poke fun at the fascination with idols. Psalm 115, 4-8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. And to that, Jeremiah 10 verse 5 adds, their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. So on the one hand, the idols are worthless. And yet on the other hand, the idols are extremely dangerous. Deuteronomy 32, 16 to 17 says, They stirred him, that is, the God of Israel, to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations that provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers have never dreaded. So on the one hand, the idols are mocked, but on the other hand, Behind those blocks of stone and wood stands the power of the demonic to do unspeakable evil in Israel. How then, if that's true, should we think about the true God? The Back to the Bible Canada-Israel experience is a trip like none other. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. A supporter who attended our last trip said, Now I can relate to the places of the Bible visually because I've actually been there. The planning and organization of the trip was excellent. I'd love to go on another Back to the Bible Canada trip in the future. So make your plans to join an intimate group of spiritual pilgrims this coming April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 for the Israel Experience, hosted by Back to the Bible Canada with on-location teaching with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, evenings of entertainment with Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests. More information and trip itinerary and registration forms are available now. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to learn more. Ten Commandments are God's laws by which He, as the Creator, demands that all people obey. And the very first of His laws is this, You shall have no other gods before me. That is, the God who is the Creator, the God who exists, demands exclusive worship. He will not tolerate a substitute in the place of Him. 
But again, we're asked then to answer the question we've already asked. How then can we know the God of the Bible? Well, a part of the answer is given by Isaiah the prophet, and his answer is given to us in the negative. And yet the negative answer is extremely revealing. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 records God as speaking, and he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let's see if I can restate that. The very highest thought that you and I have ever entertained about God comes far short of him. You and I will never be able to wrap our mental arms around God. We will not be able to reason our way through to imagining what a perfect being is actually like. In the end, whatever we think of God will always be woefully inadequate. And here's the danger of idolatry. Idolatry is so much more than simply fashioning an image of God. It's creating God after our own imagination or in accordance with our own desires. Our idols, in the end, look remarkably like us. It's a part of that age-old question. Did the gods create us or did we create the gods? Of course, the atheist will respond, well, we created God. He's the product of our imagination. And to that, the biblical person responds, well, I have a great deal in common with you. A great many gods are the product of human imaginations. I know that there are spiritual beings, beings the Bible identifies as fallen angels and demons, and they are the gods of the nations. But these are not the creator. And furthermore, even here, people still impose their own thoughts on those things that they worship and serve. So let's restate Isaiah 55. The thoughts of our culture are not the thoughts of God. The views of our culture on the being of God do not correspond to the God that exists. Whenever I or you say, I like to think of God as, and then we fill in the blank as to what that is, we can say most assuredly that what you like to think of God has absolutely no relationship to the God that exists. The reason idols are so popular and so dearly loved and so avidly defended is not that idols actually save us in the day of disaster or that they accomplish something for us, but rather idols are popular because the idols are not about the deities at all. Idols are popular because they are about us. They tell us our deepest treasures, our greatest loves, the things we prize above all things and the things we long for and the things we like to think about, that all these things we say, that is what God is like. See, I once carried on an email correspondence with a grade 12 girl from a local high school, which was close to the church where I was. It was, at least from my vantage point, fascinating. The correspondence began at her initiative, and she wrote me because of what they were studying in school, and she wondered how clergy, such as myself, could be so narrow-minded. She said, you know good and well that people's sexual orientation is not a choice. Why are you then so narrow-minded as to condemn people for what they are by nature? She said, it's a part of our genetics. That was basically the content of her opening email. And I decided I would enter into a dialogue with her. But because of my position, I wanted to be as gentle and as gracious as I possibly could be. I started my response by thanking her for having taken the initiative to talking to me. I expressed to her my desire that she and I could have a healthy interchange. Perhaps both of us could learn something from each other. And then on the matter of sexual orientation, I simply said, I don't know that sexual orientation is a part of our genetics. If it were so, 
we would expect that a blind genetic test would identify all the homosexuals in our test group. Well, she went on a diligent internet search and so our conversation began. In some ways, I was delighted for our interchange for I was learning what she was learning in her classroom. But what I found troubling is that she, not I, brought God into the picture. She frequently told me what God thinks about these things. And when I inquired how she knew what God thought about anything, she responded by doubling down. God would be accepting of people's orientation, she said. I asked how we would know that, and she said, because he's loving. And I asked how we would know that God would be loving in the way that she had defined love. See, the point I was trying to make is not that I wanted to outmatch a grade school student. I certainly didn't want to take advantage of a girl who was strident but I did find her to be like the rest of humanity. We determine who God shall be, and we're going to fight with a great deal of vigor to make sure that our view of God is affirmed. All of us by nature want God to be like we are. As John Kelvin said, the human heart is by its very nature an idol factory. We produce idols by the score. It's just what we do. It doesn't matter if you're a high school student wanting to affirm our society's view of homosexuality or if you're the churchgoer who wants, you know, sticky notes of encouragement from God so that he might bless us in our efforts or if you're the liberal theology professor arguing for a God in keeping with the highest aspirations of an egalitarian society. You see, in each case, we can't imagine a God other than the one that we conceive. But the God of Mount Sinai from his very first law thundered out that he's going to tolerate none of that. You will have no other version of God other than that which truly corresponds to my true being. You see, this is the problem. Since the highest thought I have of God will fall short of his true being, and if God utterly condemns the worship of the God of our imagination and intellect, what is to be done? See, I began by saying that the Bible is a book about God. I also said that if we could get a vision of the true God, that it would be like standing for the first time at, you know, the Grand Canyon or gazing at the rings around Saturn for the first time. In those moments, we catch a glimpse of grandeur and we actually lose ourselves and we're suddenly taken up in something so much greater than ourselves or our values or our desires and our thoughts. It is this vision that the Bible is all about. You haven't studied the Bible if in so doing you haven't gazed at the majesty, well, well, like the one that's described in Job. You might remember what he said. It's it's recorded in Job 42, 5, and 6. He said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. See, what the Bible offers us is a glimpse of the God who exists not the God of human reflection. But how does it do that? If the highest thought that we can think is not even close to knowing the true God, are we then left to say nothing about God at all? Well, on the one hand, yeah, you might think that. How can we, through our thoughts, say anything at all? But on the other hand, no. For God can take the initiative. He can tell something about himself to us. And here's the thing about the Bible. The Bible denies that it is the product of human reasoning. Instead, the Bible insists that it is God's self-disclosure. God has in mercy revealed himself. And what has God told us about himself? See, on the one hand, we might think about Moses going up on Mount Sinai. He's receiving the Ten Commandments written on stone tablets. And while he's there, 
God appears to him, and I'm reading Exodus 34, verses 5 to 8. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers, on the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And that's it. Not human reasoning about God, but a God who has condescended to visit us and whose presence is so overwhelming we stop our mouths, fall on our knees, and worship. Throughout the Bible story, God progressively declares more about himself. And part of the way he does that is by declaring his names. But he also declares his attributes, his characteristics. He declares he has no needs. He tells us he never changes. He tells us he's spirit. He's eternal. He never came into existence but always existed. He tells us he fills heaven and earth. Indeed, he is present to all spaces at all times. He tells of his wisdom and his justice and his omnipotent power. And as we read, we suddenly realize we're standing at the Grand Canyon. It's no longer about us. Indeed, we revel in the fact that it's not about us, but it's about him. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And indeed, this is why it matters. It matters for a human being to stand in awe before the one who is ultimately valuable. Thanks so much, John. You know, I've heard so many people say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not religious. How should we understand that? Well, now I've heard that too, and I think a lot of it depends on how we understand religion. Uh, in the dictionary, there is a, you know, a clear definition of religion, which is an organized system of belief. Uh, religion doesn't mean man's attempt to appease God. I mean, there's no, I mean, I know it gets used that way in contemporary language, but that's not officially what it means. And in the book of James, it talks about pure and undefiled religion. And so, you know, the Bible doesn't uh, uh, stray away from that word. So I don't find that a helpful thing to say. I think rather that we should say, you know, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and leave it at that. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for our last message in the series, a mission for ministry right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. This year has been one of the more challenging years of my lifetime, and I know it has been for many of you. That's why we felt it so important that all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada would continue uninterrupted. In fact, we would even add new Bible teaching video programming on YouTube. Your response has been overwhelming. Your prayers, encouragement, and support has sustained this ministry, and we can't thank you enough. As our fiscal year comes to a close, we'd ask you to continue to support. Our target is $325,000, but to help us get there, a group of ministry friends have provided a $75,000 matching gift pledge. That means every dollar you give is matched by another dollar up to $75,000. Thank you for your continued support. If you'd like more information or to send a gift towards the Match Campaign, simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca.